Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, if you would, take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. If you're anything like me, you can at times find it difficult to connect what we know and love about the gospel to our daily lives. We know that the Lord wants us to live sold out for him, that we are to be passionate for Jesus Christ, and yet we have to go to work every day, and we have to take care of the kids every day, and we need to go about our seemingly mundane schedule. And while evangelicalism has appropriately emphasized the inner life of faith, in that our faith in Jesus Christ is what matters most, we have also often failed to connect that faith in Christ with the things that we fill our lives with. And when we think about living our lives for the glory of God, Sometimes what first jumps into our mind is, oh yeah, I need to spend more time in the morning reading my Bible and praying. We connect it with some spiritual activity, maybe a missions trip, maybe more ministry in the church. But I believe that the scriptures connect the gospel to our daily lives in a more fundamental way than just doing quote unquote spiritual things. And so we need to do more to connect our lives with living gospel-centered lives in our everyday. So that as we fulfill our roles as employers and employees, as parents and as children, as students, or as citizens in this country, we need to know what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life in all of those roles and in all of the, the aspects of those roles in which God has placed us. And so that's what I want to help us do this morning in our passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Now before we dive into the passage, let me give us a little bit of context to help inform us as we look at Ephesians 2. Paul has begun this whole letter in chapter 1 by praising God for his great plan of redemption. Paul has pulled back and he's been able to look at the grand scheme of everything that God has done to work salvation for us. And he begins by just saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He praises God for this redemption plan. This redemption plan which includes Believers being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It includes being predestined for adoption, being included in the family. We see that in 1 verse 5. It includes receiving forgiveness of sins in chapter 1 verse 7. And it includes receiving the seal of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 verse 13. Paul goes on then after recapping this great plan of redemption Goes, goes into praying for the Ephesians. He prays that these believers would know the hope that they have in Christ 
This Christ, this Jesus Christ whom God has placed far above all rule and authority. Who's placed above every name that is named. And so these are the the big picture truths of the gospel that Paul is rehearsing here in chapter 1. And as he goes into chapter 2, he's now going to get more specific. He's going he's to get more specific at, the, at how the gospel applies into these believers' lives. He's reminding them of the transformation that took place in their, in their lives. And so let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and look at how this transformation takes place. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature Children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This morning, in verses 8 through 10, we're going to see two ways, two ways to live out the gospel in our everyday. Two ways to live out our gospel in our everyday. And the first way to do that is to be humbled by God's grace to you. Be humbled by God's grace to you. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. Of course, the starting point to living out the gospel in our everyday is to know the gospel, is to be clear on the gospel, is to know in a concrete way what the gospel is. And that's what verse 8 here gives us. Let's look at it again. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now notice that the verse starts out with the word for. This signals to us that Paul is continuing his argument from the verses that came before. And particularly he's going to explain what he just said. And give us like a summary statement. Well, what has he just said? Well, what we just read is that he spoke of our previous life before Jesus Christ, right? In verses 1 through 3, he spoke about our previous condition before Christ, which is that we're dead. 
He spoke about our previous allegiance. We followed the devil. We followed the prince of the power of the air. He talked about our previous community. We were, we were with the sons of disobedience among whom we once lived. He spoke of our previous behavior. We walked in trespasses and sins. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And he spoke of our previous destiny, that we were children of wrath. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the description of our life before Jesus Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. No way to save ourselves, living in our sin. We were like the rest of mankind, as he says at the end of verse 3. But then in verse 4, there's a great contrast, a huge contrast. He says, but God being rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now notice that he doesn't say, but you. It's nothing that you have done. He says, but God, God took the initiative. God made us alive together in Christ. He gave us new life. He raised us up with Christ. And this is all to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. And then for by grace in verse 8. Now remember, we are seeing how we live out the gospel in our everyday and the first way we can do that is to be humbled by God's grace for us. So let's, here in these verses, see God's grace displayed for us. We're going to see God's grace displayed in several different ways. The first way we see his grace displayed is his grace in the act of your salvation. The simple act of your salvation. He says, by grace you have been saved. It is your salvation in which God displays his grace. Now, this verb here communicates not only a past fact, but it communicates also a continuous action. This point in which we were saved in the past, and, and yet we are continuing to be saved every day. This is the great reality of salvation. Yes, there was a point in time in which your eyes were open to your sin, in which you professed faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also a sense in which God saves you every single day. God is at the work of saving you from your sin. I think this can be well illustrated through the analogy of a lifeboat. We can say that the unredeemed life is as if we were about to perish on a crippled ship, threatening to sink as a result of sustained unrepairable damage in a storm. So we're on this ship and we're about to go down. This is our unredeemed life. And then lifeboats arrive to rescue us and begin the perilous journey to bring us safely to shore. Once in the saving vessel, however, the storm rages on. No one is quite sure when the storm may dissipate or when another may erupt on the way to safety. While we may experience smooth sailing for a time, we very well could be smothered with peril again. And so reaching the safe confines of the shore is the ultimate goal. Making the exchange from a sinking to a saving vessel is the initiation of salvation. That is our justification. 
The voyage in the lifeboat is the working out of our salvation or sanctification and reaching the shores, our final arrival in heaven or glorification. And while every analogy breaks down, uh, it helps to communicate the reality that even though we are saved, there is a continual battle, a continual reality in which God is saving us. But we need to ask, how are we saved? How can we be saved? How is it that you and I, people who are children of wrath, who have walked in our sins, could ever be saved? And we know that the answer is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only because of his blood, as is stated in chapter 1, verse 7, that it's through his blood that we have forgiveness of sins. It's through his blood that we are able to be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, it is only through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ in which you are able to be saved before God. You'd be condemned to hell forever if it were not for his amazing grace in your life. As we sang earlier this morning, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That is the amazing grace of salvation in our lives. And I encourage you, be humbled this morning by this grace. Be humbled that God has saved you. Be humbled that he is continuing to save you. Be humbled that he will complete what he began in you. And he will bring you safely to that shore one day. So we first see his grace in the act of our salvation. We secondly, we see his grace in the basis of our salvation. What is the basis by which he saves us? We see in verse 8 that it's by grace through faith. This rescue mission that God accomplished for us was by grace through faith. And this really communicates both the objective and the subjective side of our salvation. Objectively, from God's perspective, when God looked at us and said, why should I save them? The thought that came to his mind was simply, I want to be gracious to them. It wasn't, oh, they deserve it, I should give it to them. It wasn't, oh, they've earned it. It was, I want to display my grace to give salvation to those who are unworthy. Grace is the act of giving something that is undeserved. And thus, our salvation is clearly falls in that category. Now, subjectively on our part, Paul makes clear that the doorway which we walk through in order to achieve that salvation, uh, sorry, in order to obtain that salvation is the doorway of faith. We can't sit back and suddenly wake up one day and without believing, we need to believe in order to be saved. Faith is simply trusting in God. It's putting our confidence and reliance on him and on what he said. Faith has been well illustrated as, as sitting in a chair, right? When you, when you all sat down in your pews this morning, there was a point in which you were standing and then you begin to shift your weight and a point in which you committed fully. And you said, I am trusting this pew to hold me up and you let gravity take care of the rest. And so there's that point of trust, that point of confidence in the chair or the object that you're sitting in. And so it is with God. We must place our full trust, our full confidence upon him. There's not a half confidence. You can't half stand and half sit. 
You've got to completely sit down. You've got to completely trust God. And that's what he says. We are saved through this faith. Now, lest we think that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, good job for this faith, Paul makes it abundantly clear that there is no credit at all that we can take for this salvation. And in fact, you can look in, uh, in the second half of verse 8. He says, this is not our own doing. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works. Folks, this is where the true gospel differs from every other religion in the world. Even Roman Catholicism. And other systems of salvation. Yes, there might be a benevolent act from deity to save or to put you in a better position. But it's always conditioned on a good religious act by the subject. In other words, you need to do something so that the deity will accept you. But see, Christianity is different. Christianity is different from all the rest because it claims there's nothing you can do to make God accept you. There's nothing that you can do to make him look upon you with favor. It only requires his grace. It's without works, he says. There's nothing that can contribute to our salvation. God does all of the work. Now, why, does, why did God set it up this way? Why didn't he give us a little piece that we could like chime in and we could go, hey God, let's do this together, yeah. Why doesn't he do that? Well, he gives us the reason at the end of verse 9. A big so that phrase. So that no one may boast. God wants to take our pride and bring it to the electric chair and kill it once and for all. God wants our pride slaughtered. And that is why he set up the gospel in this way. And so you see, we must be humbled by this grace. We must be humbled not just once at some point in our past. We must be humbled every day by this reality that there's nothing that we could do to contribute to our salvation. I ask you, are you humbled by that this morning? Are you truly humbled? Recognizing there's nothing that you could contribute. We continue to see his grace. Thirdly, and his grace is the source of our salvation. His grace is the source. And this is just, again, emphasizing what we've already seen. But you notice at the end of verse 8, he says that it's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. He's saying there's nothing. Salvation did not originate in us. Not only could we not work things together enough and do enough good stuff, but we can't have it within us to even find salvation. Too much of the popular advice given today is to just look inside yourself. You're facing adversity, just look inside yourself and you'll find what you need to press on and to be the kind of person you need to be. Christianity says there's, no, there's nothing in there but sin and wickedness apart from the grace of God. And so we need to look outside of ourselves. And that's why Paul says that this is a gift of God. It's a gift from God. It's a gift that finds its source in the triune God of the universe. Therefore, the salvation is a gift to be received, not achieved. It requires humility and gratitude, not pride and smugness. 
Folks, if we're to live out this gospel in our everyday lives, we must have a deep heart level humility for what God has done. Not just a lip confession, oh yeah, God saved me, it's not me. This has got to affect us deeply. We need to wake up each morning recognizing that we are saved by grace. That if it were, if, if it was up to us, if it was based upon us, we could end up in hell. But no, we are saved by grace. God has given it to you. And so here in verses 8 through 9, we've seen the first way to live out the gospel in our everyday, and that is to be humbled by God's grace to you. And I encourage you to ask yourself, are you truly humbled by that grace? Well, let's now look at the second way. The second way to live out the gospel in our everyday. And that is be energized by God's purpose for you. Be energized by God's purpose for you. And we see this in verse 10. Which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now one of the failures of evangelicalism in the last century is the promotion of, and really intrusion, of easy believism. This belief that all you need to do is walk an aisle, say a prayer, and you're good to go for the rest of your life. There's nothing that needs to change, and it really creates this idea of simply fire insurance. We just want to stay out of the fires of hell, and we say, yeah, sure, well, I don't want to go to hell, so what do I got to do? Okay, sign the dotted line? Okay, I'll do that. And we've promoted this, this Gospel that simply requires people to say a prayer and confess something and think that they're good for the rest of their life. Now, if you're reading Ephesians 2 and you stop at verse 9, you might, I say might, be tempted to think that. You might be tempted to think that it just simply, we're saved and that's the end of the story. But verse 10 doesn't get us off the hook. Verse 10 clarifies for us because you see, God is concerned more than just changing your final destiny. God is more concerned than just deciding where you're going to spend all of eternity. God's work is total. It touches every area of our lives. He wants to claim it all for the lordship of Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name. He doesn't just want to change the team you play on. He wants to change your role and what you do. He wants to change what you do and how you do it. And that's what we see here in verse 10. Notice, look at it with me. Verse 10 starts out with, for we are his workmanship. Again, the four tells us that he's going on to explain. He's going to explain why salvation is not of human origin, but of divine origin. And the reason is that we are God's workmanship. We are created in Christ. Now notice that he changes from the second person, you, to the first person, we. Paul is including himself here and recognizing the full totality of what's going on here. He says that we are his workmanship. 
Now, this word workmanship is a translation from the Greek word poema, from which we get the word, English word, poem. Poema, poem, you can hear the similarities. And it simply refers to something that's been created or formed or produced. Okay, this, this is what this workmanship means. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word poema was used to reference God's works, the things that God has done. We see that in Psalm 64, 9, as well as Psalm 143, 5. And we also see it used of uh, a person's skillful work or art. This thing that a person has skillfully created. We see that in Ecclesiastes 4 verse 4 and Isaiah 29, 16. But then we get to the New Testament and this word is only used twice. It's used twice. It's used once in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 and here in Ephesians 1 or 2 verse 10. In Romans 1 verse 20, it refers to God's physical, physical creation. He's speaking about how mankind has been able to view all the things that he has made. And he uses this word poema, his, his workmanship, this, this, this thing that he's produced. And so it's that physical creation that we read about in Genesis 1. But here in Ephesians 2 verse 10, it refers to a, not a physical creation, but a spiritual creation. It refers to a, a spiritual recreation. And this is a reference to believers' new creation in Christ, which we see in the next phrase. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The verb created here is a passive, which means that it's something that the believer has done to them. It's not something they actively do. We don't create ourselves. We are created. And it's something that's done to us. Because you see, we were dead in our trespasses, chapter 2, verse 1. We needed someone to touch down and to give, and, and, and give us new life. And so God has done that through Jesus Christ. Now we don't have time to go into the full theological weight of what's go, what Paul is referencing here. But this is, this is tying into this great redemption plan that Paul began this book talking about. This great redemption plan in which God is looking to undo what Adam and Eve did in the fall. What was lost in the fall. God is recreating a humanity for himself through Jesus Christ. He's one day going to recreate an Eden in the new heavens and the new earth in which us as the new created humanity will dwell forever with him just like it was intended to be in the garden. God is in the process of reversing the effects of the fall. And what God is doing in us is really a first fruits of all of that great redemption plan. Much of that recreation, much of that recreating Eden hasn't happened yet. But we have been, re we have been created. We have been created new. And you, we see this in other places in the Apostle Paul, right? I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 where he says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come and so you could you could say that for us as believers we are doubly owned by God you are owned by God because he created you he created your flesh your bones your body but he also owns you because he has created you spiritually. He has given you new life. 
And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are not our own. We don't own ourselves. We don't set our own agenda. God sets our agenda. And what is the agenda that God has set for us? This is what we see in verse 10. He says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works or good deeds. These good works were prepared by God before creation. According to 1 verse 4, we were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world. And now in 2 verse 10, we see that all the good works we perform in our life as a result of our salvation were also prepared before the creation of the world. This is amazing. This means that before Genesis 1-1, not only was your salvation planned out, but all of the good works in which you live in your life were already predetermined by God, set out for you to walk in. And so what's the purpose of God preparing all these good works for us? He says the purpose is that we would walk in them so that we would live our lives in these good works. Guys, like I said earlier, the gospel Paul is preaching here is one that transforms every area of our lives. This is not just to change a belief. This is transforming our everyday in chapter, uh, earlier in this chapter, we saw in verses 1 through 3 that we used to walk in the passions of our flesh. Now, as a new creatures in Christ, we walk in good works. This is like a, a sandwich of, of, we used to walk this way, and now we walk this way. Paul has come full circle, showing how this transformation has affected what we do every day. It's a change in lifestyle. Now let me remind you again, these good works do not in any way contribute to our salvation. They are an outworking of it. Good works are a fruit of our salvation, not the root of it. This isn't us doing a work for God, but God doing a work in and through us. You see, the gospel moves good works to the other side of the equal sign. You're like, what does that mean? Well, well, all other religions have this equation. They say, yeah, you might have faith in a deity and God, but you need to do some good works and then you'll get salvation. See, Christianity is radical. Christianity says all you need is faith and you receive salvation and then God produces good works in you. He gives you salvation. He gives you good works. This is the good gift of God's work in you. And so, therefore, if you've believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you have been created new. And with that new life, you have been created to accomplish good works. <laughs> see, we see here in this verse that our lives as Christians should be devoted to good works. And this isn't new. Right? We see this, we see this all throughout the New Testament. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before others so that we may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. <laughs> Titus 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 14. He says that our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself 
a people for his own possession, look at this, who are zealous for good works. Not just who do some good works, not just who get around to doing some good works whenever it's convenient, but those who are zealous, actively looking to do good works. See, Jesus wants us to be fruitful in good works. John 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so this is what God wants from your life. This is what God wants from my life is that we would be about good works. So now we need to ask ourselves, what are good works? Right? If this is what we're supposed to be doing, what exactly are good works? Well, I first want to approach this by mentioning some insufficient views of good works. Some insufficient views. Okay? Now, these are not totally wrong. They're just not the whole picture. All right? And I think we can often get caught up in thinking this. And I, before I list these, I just want you to ask, what do you think you've thought about when you've read good works in the New Testament? Or maybe you're like, I don't know what I really thought about. Well, you'll see if maybe these things had come to mind. The first insufficient view of good works is ministry. Ministry. To think that when the Bible says that we are created for good works, that it is simply about special ministry projects, such as organized evangelism, such as going on a missions trip, such as serving time at your church, such as helping with a service project. Those are all great. And remember, I said these views aren't wrong, they're just insufficient. So ministry is definitely included in these good works. Mission trips are definitely included in the good works that we were created to do. But it's not the whole picture. The second insufficient view is random acts of kindness. Random acts of kindness. This is kind of a, a catchphrase a while ago in which you just, you know, let's all set about to do some random acts of kindness. And we uh, find some great thing that will help our neighbor and uh, we need to be about doing these things, you know, the, the proverbial helping the old lady cross the street. Uh, maybe it's help your neighbor clean their yard. Uh, maybe it's pick up that piece of trash. Um, whatever it is, we just think that there's these random things that will pop up in the middle of our week or some point in the year and we'll think, oh, I'll just want to help this person. And while it's true, we should be doing acts of kindness that might even seem random to other people, uh, our lives are not simply to be composed of just random acts of kindness. Um, because if we're waiting for random acts of kindness to happen, they, don't, they do happen quite randomly and quite sparsely, right? <laughs> so thus, this, uh, this can't be the whole picture of what the Bible's talking about. The third insufficient view of good works is godly behavior. In other words, you read that we're created for good works and you think, oh, that means that God's created me to read my Bible or to not swear or to uh, simply be, uh, obey my parents. Or, and we put some sort of, of, of moral imperative or some sort of good action or good behavior that we're simply called to do. And so we walk away going, okay, I'm created for good works. Now I need to go out and just be a better Christian. Just be, good at, be better at these things. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. Now, doing those things, again, are good and are certainly a part of what the Bible's talking about when he's talking about good works, but they aren't the totality of it. 
To just say I'm going to be a more godly Christian is an application of good works, I think, falls drastically short. And what these do, when we adopt these, is that they can, like we talked about when we started this morning, there can be a disconnect from our Christian lives, our faith in Christ, and our daily life. Because, you see, ministry and random acts of kindness and, this God, and our reading our Bibles in the morning, this all happens in small little pieces of our week. But, it, but we live our lives at our jobs and in our homes and our street and our soccer teams <laughs> in so many other places. And we need a view of good works that touches in all of that. And so biblically, we can say that good works are not only the rare, the special, the extraordinary, or extra spiritual things that we do. But good works are anything that we do in faith. So what does it mean to do good works? It means to do what you already do, but do it in faith. Do it with the motive to glorify God and do good to others. Good works are anything that you do in faith. Now does that mean that you could do the same thing twice and one be a good work and one not be, potentially. You see, our faith in the actions matter. It's not just what we do. It's not just checking off the list that we did it. Now, how do we know biblically that this is the case? Well, the biblical rationale begins, number one, is that good, we look at good works, good is defined by God. Good is defined by his will, and his will we find written in the word of God. So we want to know what good works are. We need to know what conforms to his will. And he doesn't just tell us to go on mission trips and do evangelism. He tells us to do things like, oh, say, love our neighbor as ourselves, right? And that means that anytime we do good for our neighbor in faith, we're doing good works. And we know that who is our neighbor? Well, the Good Samaritan parable helps to realize that our neighbor is whoever's right in front of us. And Scripture also gives us some good examples of what good works are as well. In 1 Timothy 5 verse 10, uh, God is giving the qualifications for a widow, for the church, a widow to be enrolled in the, the church's roles. And he says that the widow must have a reputation for good works. And he then gives a list of examples of what good works the widow has done. And the first thing on the list is that she has raised up children. Parents, take heart. Raising children, investing your time in your children is a good work in the sight of God. This is living out your faith on a daily basis, living the gospel in the everyday. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, He's speaking to slaves and talking about the work that they do every day. And he says that this work that they're doing every day, which in our context could relate more probably to an employee, but saying that those who do these works every day, these are, these are good things that, in which they will receive back from the Lord. And I think the reference to the good that they do every day is really an allusion back to our passage here. Because this is Ephesians 6, it's, he's really alluding back to Ephesians chapter 2 and saying, this good work you're doing every day is really the good works that God has prepared for, for you before the creation of the world. And so the biblical understanding of good works is that they are 
the things that we do every day for the good of others to the glory of God. Now here's what this means for you. It means that the things you do every day are not just busy work. They're good works. When you're making dinner for your family, you're not just making dinner for your family. You're doing a good work. When you're answering email, you're not just answering email. You're doing a good work, seeking to serve others. When you're doing your math homework, students, you're not just doing your math homework. You're looking to serve others to the glory of God. Now, obviously the best good thing that we can do for someone, the best way to serve somebody is to show them eternal life. To show them Christ. And that is why we have the Great Commission. That is why we have been commissioned to preach the gospel. But the good works that are predestined for us to do are not simply limited to sharing the gospel. They are included in all the things that we do to serve others to the glory of God. Now notice, this isn't an option for some of us to be about good works and some of us not to be. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been created for good works. That's what you've been created anew to do. That's why you have new life. And so you might be thinking, wait, so you're saying I should be trying to do all the good I can in every place in life? Yes. In fact, there's a great quote that John Wesley famously said. He says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can. Make the most of the time. This is the life that the gospel has called us to. It's a life of dying to self. It's a life of putting others before ourselves. And let's remember our passage here. The gospel is not simply giving us a law and a command and pointing at us and saying, go do that in your own strength. No. No, see, God's created us anew. He's given us his spirit. He has set us free from the need to achieve anything before God. And so these good works are given to us. They are divinely planned, divinely created, and divinely enabled within us. So living out these verses for us is really, can be boiled down to living out and obeying the first and second commandments, the first and second greatest commandments that Jesus told us, which was loving God and loving our neighbor, right? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, let the gospel transform your every day. Let the gospel transform everything you do. Let it control all you do. We're to be radical in our love. Love is to be the, the controlling ethic of our lives as we step into our workplaces, as we step into our homes, as we step onto uh, the places at our schools. Love is what we are thinking about. The continual mindset we need to have in all we do is what will serve the other person. What will serve the other person? This isn't a once a month consideration. This is not a once a week consideration. This is not a um, let's evaluate our marriage situation. This is an every day, all the time, no matter where you're at, thinking about what will serve the other person. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? Which means that we need to take the same energy in which we, we take into loving and, and taking care of ourselves and take care of other people. 
desire and seek the good of others with the same passion, the same creativity, and the same perseverance as you seek your own. As a, as a Christian husband, when you pull into the hot driveway at night, you need to be asking yourself, what will serve my wife and my family tonight? Not what do I want to do this evening? As a Christian employee, when you walk into work in the morning, you need to have the mindset, what will serve my boss, my coworkers, and the customers? Not what will make me happy today before I get off my shift. As a Christian mother, as you launch into your day at home with the kids, you need to have the mindset to serve your family. Not just, not just doing this because you know this is your job or you know this is what you're supposed to do. Students, as a Christian student, when you step onto the campus every day, you need to ask yourself, what will serve my teachers and my classmates? Not, what do I want to do to simply before class gets out. This radically changes how we look at every piece of our lives. It's not just our spiritual life and then we have our work. Not just our spiritual life and then we go to school. It's not just our spiritual life and then all these little decisions we make about our homes and our families and our lives. But those things are to be done for the sake of serving others to the glory of God. And so to close this morning, I want to give you guys five practical ways to love and serve people every day. Five practical ways to love and serve people every day. These five ways and other things that I've said this morning have come from a book that I highly recommend to you. It's called What's Best Next? Subtitle, How the Gospel Transforms the Way You Get Things Done. If you're a business person and you've thought about productivity, this guy is the lone thinker that has applied Christian theology to the method of productivity and getting things done, um, unlike any other I've seen. And, um, and this is, goes for students, this goes for anyone who works, this goes for uh, housewives. I, it's, it's hugely helpful, and it's, it's, I encourage you to get it. But these are five ways that he gives us in the book I want to pass on to you. The first practical way to love and serve people every day is to have a real goodwill toward the other person. Have a real goodwill towards the other person. Motives count, okay? You know that the essence of love is truly wanting the best for somebody, not just doing what you think they may like and hoping that they're okay with it. But we need to make sure we have the right motive. The second, we need to put the other person first. This means finding out what the other person needs and making those needs your priority and not making your own needs a priority. This is seen in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. But, but why do we do this? Why do we seek out and look for other people's needs and try to make them our own priority? Because you see, Christ made our needs his priority. This very reality of living out every day in our workplaces and in our homes and in our streets, this idea of seeking the good of others is, is rooted in the gospel. We live out the gospel because Christ pursued us this way and we put others first in the same way. The third way in which we can serve others is be eager in meeting the needs of others, not be grudging and reluctant. Ouch. <laughs> This isn't just doing it because we know it's good. 
right? The classic obeying your mom just because she told you to do it. The roll of the eyes and look, I got it done, okay? It's, it's the heart that matters as well. And if we're truly seeking to love people, we need to think what is going to love and serve them. Is it going to serve them if I go through this thing to serve them, but I do it begrudgingly? I mean, men, you know, if we take our wives out for a date and we're just doing it because it's our duty, um, that doesn't serve her very well. It does, she doesn't enjoy that. That's not actually showing love, even though you're taking her on a date like she asked, right? Okay? Our heart behind it matters. And so we're to be eager in doing this. Be eager in doing good works. Be zealous and energetic in doing them. Number four, we need to be proactive, not reactive in doing good. Again, a convicting point for all of us. We, we can't simply wait for needs to come our way. And guys, this is where it cuts right at the heart of American independence, where we want to go in our own lives, in our own track. We've got our own plans and if something happens to fly in front of us, then okay, we'll deal with it. But we need to be about seeking out the needs of others. Looking for needs, looking for problem areas, looking where we can serve. Jesus says to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're proactive in loving ourselves, proactive in taking care of our own needs. And therefore, we should be proactive in taking care of the needs of other people. We need to be on the watch for doing good. Be perceptive and discern the needs of our spouses. Discern the needs of our children. Discern the needs of our neighbors and our coworkers, And maybe the people in our small group before they go code red. <laughs> we shouldn't wait till there's a big red blinking light before we actually seek to serve people. We should be proactive in looking for that. Number five, avoid a self-protective mindset and take pains to do good for others. Folks, we are called to do good even if it requires sacrifice. This is what we get from Christ. We should be willing to make things harder on ourselves if it makes it easier for somebody else. In doing so, we are really imitating God. Our default mindset should not be, how do I protect myself and keep from being taken advantage of? But rather, how do I demonstrate in my own life God's radical, abounding love for me? And this means a Christian life involves risk. Now, we can often avoid risk and go, oh, God must not be calling us there because there's risk. But sometimes, the thing God might be calling us to actually does have risk. We need to go to extremes to help others because Jesus went to extremes to help us. And number six, we need to be creative and competent in doing good, not lazy and shoddy. Now, this goes for schoolwork. This goes for housework. This goes for work that we do at our jobs. The Christian ethic says that if we're to be stepping into all those spheres and looking to serve people to the best that we can, we need to do it with excellence. We're not just getting it done to get it done. We're not just doing it to check it off the list because our boss wants it and so we'll just get this done. We're doing it with the, with the best labor we can give. Because you see, incompetence and half-done work is one of the most unloving things we can do. 
You help your neighbor, neighbor remodel their kitchen and you cut corners. That's not loving. They're going to have to come back later and fix what you did. It's passing the burden on to them. Rather than you putting the work in ahead of time, they're having to put the work in later. And so we need to be creative in thinking of ways to serve people. And in all of this, and all of these good works that we're doing, we're doing it unto the glory of God. This isn't so that we get credit. This is so that God gets credit. Our good works need to be God-centered. We're not just going out and doing a bunch of good and, and we kind of forget God and leave God in the dust. No, because again, motives count. We must be doing it with God-centered, God-motivated desires. And so we want him to get the glory. And that's what we give our lives to. And so to wrap this up, we've seen this morning how we can live out the gospel in our everyday. We need to see the grace that God has given to us and be deeply humbled by it. And then we can look at the purpose that God's created us for and be hugely energized by it. To step out into our Monday morning with a desire and a mission to serve people. Because that's what God's created us for and he's empowered us by his spirit to do. And so may we be people who don't just serve when it's convenient, who don't just serve when it's easy, but who give our lives to serving people all of the time, just like Christ went out of his way to serve us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of grace that has touched our lives. And I pray for those here this morning who have not experienced your grace, who do not know your goodness and do not know Christ. Would you open their eyes to see that they are lost in their sins? That they, the only hope of salvation is found in Christ. And Father, I pray for Foothill Bible Church. That they'd be a community of people who give their lives to serve other people in every arena, in all the, their workplaces, in their homes, on their streets, and at their schools. Father, this is a big calling. And we feel inadequate to fulfill it. And so we simply plead and ask for your grace to empower us to live as you've called us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.